0: Hey everybody, that was CrossFaith. I'm Bo Ransdell, and this is Hero Hero Go Show. Uh, We had a bit of an unscheduled break uh, due to some scheduling issues, but that is all behind us. And we are now ready to round out uh, Season 1 on our normally weekly schedule. But uh, thank you for being patient, and I I hope you find that it's been worth it. Uh, So, in that vein, uh, our, our return to form, our movie tonight is the uh, Nobuhiku Obayashi Weird Fest, 1977's Hausu, or House. Uh, Here to help me find my way in, and more importantly, out of this movie, is the host of Kiss the Goat, and an author who has recently united several other writers for the new show, Screen Kings, examining the film adaptations of Stephen King, and you can find that right here on Legion Podcasts. Uh, Jeffrey X. Martin, welcome to the show. Take a bow and tell me what it is that I got wrong there
1: you got everything correct. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm very pleased to be here to talk about, uh, this movie. It's nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <it's,
0: laughs> so we, we have definitely done some weird movies on, on this show previously. Uh, you know, we've talked uh, about Tokyo Gore police. Um, we've, uh, uh, talked about, uh, Uzumaki, both of which are very strange films. Certainly. Um, house or house, uh, is a different breed of weird and, and it's not in what's, what's even stranger about it. it, It's, it's very non-traditional. And as, as we talk about this story, I, I think the listeners will understand what we mean by that, even in terms of Japanese cinema, this stands apart as a, an oddball even amongst some oddball films. Yes. And that is largely due to the fact that every stylistic method uh, ever used in film seems to have been employed at some point in this movie.
1: Every in-camera trick, every animation, everything is just crammed into this movie. It's like a overstuffed pita of strange.
0: Yes, it is. So let us uh, let us begin to unfold this particular pita. <laughs> um, like you know if there's a good metaphor, I just want to roll with it. Uh, yeah,
1: agreed. Let's just carry it on through.
0: Right, the, the hero of weirdness. Um, the all right. So Haosu is, uh, as we said, it was uh, a 1977 film. Um, we're going to get to the bizarre origins of this movie uh, on the back end. Um, and once we conclude our discussion of the plot, I think it will make even less sense what the movie was originally intended to be. Uh, but that's also one of the things I think is kind of wonderful about this. Um, so uh, Haosu uh, begins with uh, an introduction to our main characters, uh, namely uh, fantasy and gorgeous. And uh, as you will no doubt tell very early on, all of these characters are named uh, based on what they do, much like most Muppets. Um, (laughs) So so there's, and and help me remember here now, because we've got uh, Fantasy, Gorgeous. Kung Fu. Kung Fu is my favorite, of course. Of course. Uh, Prof. Prof. Mac. Melody, Melody, and Sweet, Sweet, are our seven main characters. Um, I don't think it's spoiling anything to uh, to say that Kung Fu is really good at Kung Fu. <clears throat> um, mac is the, Mac seems to be the the odd man out in terms of nomenclature here.
1: No, I think I haven't figured out.
0: Is it Mac and Cheese? Is that where we're getting this from?
1: I was thinking Big Mac.
0: Oh, Big Mac, sure. Yeah, she is supposed to be the fat one, but again, this is fat in terms of, like, Japanese schoolgirls. Right. So she is just slightly chunky. <laughs> um, even though there is not, like, all of the characters, every line that they utter is a reinforcement of their name. You know, or or, or most of their actions, like Gorgeous is, as, as you would imagine, obsessed with uh, with beauty and looking good, even though she's not, like, a, you know, kind of a bitch character, as, as a right. character like that might traditionally be. Um, fantasy uh, is a bit of a, a dreamer, um, a head-in-the-clouds kind of character, and uh, Sweet is sweet. <laughs> so I guess she's just nice.
1: She's nice. She just yeah. has a nice disposition. She likes to help. She's just a sweet person.
0: Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, Melody, who is good at music and likes music.
1: She's a multi-instrumentalist.
0: Yes. And um, who are we leaving out?
1: Uh, Uh, We still got Prof. Prof
0: is the smart one, the Thelma, if you will, (laughs) of our our mystery machine.
1: Down to the glasses.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there is that moment, too, of like, let's take off the glasses. And, oh, my God, she's pretty. Um, And at that point... (laughs) You know, uh, uh, oh god, I almost said Jonathan Taylor Thomas. That shows you how old I am. (laughs) Searching for a name, Uh, Jordan Gordon Levitt is who I was shooting for there. Um, (laughs) You know, walks down the steps and is like, "Oh my god!" You know, rubs his eyes and does the ooga. And then I
1: realized you were so pretty, Miss Librarian. Right, you let down your yeah. It's that that (laughs) whole thing. Um, and, uh, Prince junior
0: Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> Jr. would have been better than, and certainly better than Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> although I do enjoy the lion King. Um, so we have all these characters. Uh, gorgeous is, uh, is planning on going, uh, on vacation. Um, and she is, uh, well, all the girls are going to go to uh, a camp initially or an inn. The, uh, that,
1: no, it's a, it's a training camp, but they never really say what they're training for.
0: <laughs> I would assume that classes are divided up by name. Like, you know, Kung Fu, you come with us. We're practicing martial arts. Oh, Mac, okay. You're in that the mess hall. I don't know. You're right. <laughs> um, and and Gorgeous is is not going to be able to join them. Uh, her father has uh, just come home from Italy. Uh, where he is a uh, a composer, um, and they kind of name check uh, Inyo Morricone, which is kind of
1: fun. Let's let's examine that for just a second, okay? Because the actual line is Leone said my music was better than Morricone's. No, he didn't. Sure, I I, I, just, I, I don't care. No, he did not say that.
0: It depends on how polite Sergio Leone is. <laughs> You know, it could have been one of those things. As uh, Gorgeous's dad was taken off, um, and in completing the project, he was like, "No, no, no! It's better than Inyo's. It was, it was great. We'll call you if we need you again."
1: Right? Okay, that makes sense. I can get behind that.
0: Yeah, and he's just living in a fantasy, uh, much like Gorgeous's best friend. Right. Um, so, but uh, her father has returned home with uh, a, a new girlfriend. Uh, the the mother is uh, is dead. And, uh, gorgeous has now, uh, come face to face with her soon to be stepmother who, um, is always in, you know, flowing scarves. And even when, um, there is no other wind, wind seems to find her and blow her hair around. And it's very glamorous.
1: She is a wind machine. <laughs> <laughs> she, or she is followed
0: pig style by an physical <laughs> wind machine
1: there were unseen men behind the scenes with giant fans made of banana leaves
0: (laughs) or or possibly (laughs) invisible fairies fluttering their wings (laughs) in such a way as to to send her hair in motion
1: animated butterflies
0: (laughs) yeah it's it's ridiculous but
1: so weird
0: but it, it carries through the film every time you see her it, this is going on, and it is one of the flourishes of this movie that there are moments that this movie almost feels like a Zucker film, um, which, you know, that's airplane and uh, naked gun and all that stuff. That Like, there are gags that are just silly, and uh, we see one um, <laughs> coming up here in a minute uh, that we'll, we'll get to. But uh, so gorgeous is real upset, right? She yeah. she's not crazy about this new stepmom. She writes her uh, auntie, uh, who uh, was her mother's sister, and says, "Hey, I want to come there uh, for a while and you know just get my shit together, uh, so to speak." Like she doesn't want to go on vacation with her her father and uh, uh, her soon to be stepmom, and. Um, the the turn of events that leads all the girls joining her is that um the uh, the host of the inn where all the other girls are going has taken ill, and uh, they can no longer go. And their their uh, sexy mutton chops teacher um is uh, is late like hasn't shown up yet to, to take them where they need to go. So if, uh, Gorgeous says like, Hey, come with me to my aunt's house. It, it's a super big place uh, and we'll go there and it'll be great. And so that's what they do. Right. Um, so when we do see their teacher, uh, this was where I was headed with this. One of the reasons he is delayed is because he falls and and Lance ass first in a bucket which he can't get off. And so Benny Hill Hill style, we see him running around uh, with this bucket on his ass.
1: Well, this is after the weird kind of Monty Python stop motion animation, you know, where he goes out into the street, almost gets hit by a car, swerves back onto the sidewalk, all while his ass is stuck in a bucket. It's like the bucket is a pseudopod.
0: But this is really the point in the film where even with the the kind of breezy, you know, butterfly wing producing wind uh that we see with the the soon to be stepmom, um this is really the first moment that it's just ridiculously silly. Yes. And I think it's jarring because it's early enough in the movie that we don't know what to expect from this film. And fortunately for us, uh, the movie never lets you get too comfortable (laughs) with what to expect from the film. Um, This is just the first example of, like, what the
1: hell was this? Yeah. Um, I thought this was a horror movie. What is going on? Yeah. Yeah. It...
0: And there's... Oh, there's so many touches like that. But, all right, so we're we're on the train to uh, Auntie's house, and... We get such like uh, a lot of matte painting work and color saturations, and um, there's a weird flashback to tell the backstory of the the ant uh, that's done purely silent film style, um, where we get the information we need, which is um, she was in love with a soldier who who died in World War II or disappeared. And, uh, has, you know, she's never remarried or never been married because she was waiting for him to come back and has been living alone all this time in this house. Um, you know, presumably waiting for this lover to return and has become a bit of an old maid. Um, but yeah, I mean, the visual style here is just all over the place. It, it almost plays, um, at times like the musical number from laugh (laughs) <laughs> uh, that they would whip on you every episode. It's, I'm, it, but it's that kind of aesthetic, you know, it's almost kind of hippy dippy in a way.
1: It's very socket to me.
0: Yeah. Um, and so when we get to the town, we have our, our pal, the watermelon vendor. Uh, and one of the, the best lines I heard about this character is in any other film, he would be the crazy person at the gas station that warned you not to go to, you know, Crystal Lake or whatever. Right on. You know, and in this case, he's just the watermelon guy who, by the way, Mac is sure into watermelons.
1: She loves them.
0: Oh, cannot get enough. And and <laughs> immediately finds a watermelon and is like, oh, I want to eat this. Uh, which, by the way, again... If your characteristic is you're the fat one, watermelon not the thing that I associate most with being fat.
1: No, me either. Watermelon the thing I kind of associate more with sutri. So, not so much being a fat person.
0: Yeah, like if she were cramming Kit Kats in her mouth eight, eight at a time. Right. Then, eh. Anyway. my my minor a
1: backpack t- full of Pocky.
0: Yeah, something you know, um yeah, yeah, uh, but anyway, so the the, the watermelon guy is like uh you know uh g- gives some kind of vague words of doom associated with the place, um and uh oh, and we we have to mention Blanche here as well, Blanche is gorgeous's white cat that's shown up kind of out of the blue. And uh, the other thing that we we get to on the train is the the bit about a witch's cat. Any cat can open a door, but only a witch's cat can close a door, Um, which I didn't know was a rule, but okay.
1: (laughs) I didn't either. I think they give you those at the Humane Society. Witch cats? Yeah, when you take the witch cat home, it says, okay, look out. It's going to open and close doors. Don't freak out. It's just a cat.
0: Now, you're going to see some green sparkly eyes. Don't be alarmed by that. That is traditional witch cat behavior.
1: You're going to find a lot of pictures of the cat in rooms where you did not put pictures of the cat. Perfectly normal. Do not worry about that at all.
0: Don't sweat it. It's one of the perks of witch cat ownership. You're going
1: to be really happy about this eventually.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's no Van Gogh. Don't get me wrong. But you're going to get a nice cat picture.
1: Exactly. Uh, Yeah, so
0: Blanche is along for the ride. Uh, When we we finally make it to the house, um, the the only exterior action we really have is that the teacher is still trying to get to this house as well. And after his bucket encounter, uh, he also has some car and traffic problems. And, uh, and also there, there's a mention of, uh, the stepmother, uh, coming to visit so she can have some time alone with gorgeous and try to, you know, smooth things over because gorgeous is not thrilled about the idea of having a new mother. I only mention that to say like, okay, later in the movie, those things are going to come into play, but let's get to the fun stuff.
1: There are some John Cusack, uh, hot pursuit things going on in the background.
0: Oh man. That is the movie Hot Pursuit should have been.
1: <laughs> if there were a
0: haunted house involved in that movie, it would be the greatest film I'd ever seen. Agreed. Uh, it's still a good movie. Uh, that That is prime Cusack, as far as I'm concerned. That is, you know, Better Off Dead, uh, Hot Pursuit, uh, One Crazy Summer, Say Anything. Yeah. Those are the, the Cusack movies that I like. Um,
1: I thought, yeah. It, well,. Do we count Gross Point Blank, or is that when he began to grow up?
0: That's kind of the grown-up Cusack, even though he's still got the Lloyd Dobler thing kind of happening yeah. in that movie. Uh, but, yeah, Gross Point Blank and High Fidelity and 1408 is sort of, you know, the renaissance of Cusack.
1: And then there was the number station.
0: Uh, and Cell. Uh, <laughs> which, actually, he's fine in that movie. The, that There are other problems that work there. There are a lot of other problems. Yeah. But uh, but he's in fourteen oh eight. So yes, um, <laughs> and Conair. And I get my problems with Conair too. I, I, ah, I no. know, I know, I know. I'm a
1: flawless film. But.
0: I, uh, well, <laughs> well, we'll circle around to that. Right, right now, <laughs> okay, we're
1: looks, right now House. House. All house. right, so
0: we are at the uh, the figurative and literal threshold of when this movie really takes off. Um, once the girls arrive at Auntie's house, she's in a wheelchair. It's a giant house, uh, especially by Japanese standards, which tend to be quite compact. Um, this is a big sprawling affair. Um, and uh, so first order of business, we, we meet Annie. Uh, we We head into the house. Immediately we have to take the watermelon to the well to keep that cool because Mac is real worried about this watermelon. And, well,
1: the refrigerator doesn't work.
0: Right, right. It it is a home that doesn't have a lot of, of modern uh, conveniences. Even the phone is the phone of uh, Andy Griffith. Yeah, it really is a, a a Clara, you know, get Barney on the line for me situation. <laughs> um, but uh, so once we get to the house, it's pretty clear right away if you've ever seen a horror film before. That, uh, Gorgeous's aunt is a bit on the weird side. Um, she's, uh, in a wheelchair and is just kind of, uh, being rolled around by Gorgeous and her friends. But she says a lot of stuff that's, you know, the vaguely ominous lines that most of these characters get. Um... And, uh, when they, you know, sit down to eat food, she doesn't eat with them and that kind of stuff. You know, it's a real Dracula kind of, uh, situation. Um, so our first big deal is Mac going after the watermelon and she ends up, uh, not coming back.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh at this. It's very tragic. It, it
0: Yes, but she, uh, so when she goes missing and the other girls notice, uh, fantasy is the one who goes to, uh, to get the watermelon. Um, she instead, uh, pulls, uh, the rope up and it's max head, uh, which starts flying around and the scene kind of culminates with the disembodied head, Biting fantasy in the ass before bouncing off and floating around and giggling, and then fantasy <laughs> freaks out and runs off.
1: I have to admit, I would run off also.
0: Yeah, well, sure. Uh I don't know. I mean, it, de- it depends on how tender the, the bite was, I suppose.
1: Okay, well, that's true.
0: that's true. Um, You know, you want to allow for romance, but... <laughs> the
1: the floating head effect looks like a weather map gone wrong. Like, yes. Just a bad chroma key.
0: And there's a lot of that in this movie that like that particular trick is used a bunch. Yeah. And you're either going to find it completely off putting because it's, it's done with a, a, a great degree of passion. There's no doubt about that, but oh, yeah. it's just the technology of the time. And, uh, and the budget of the film and yeah, it looks real goofy, but it's also kind of terrific. Yeah. Uh, especially when the head bites her in the ass, it's another one of those moments <laughs> of like, what is going on in this movie? We have floating heads taking you know, noshes on people's firm buttocks
1: and we have an auntie who looks like Yoko Warhol.
0: Yeah, she does. She does have Andy Warhol glasses at first. It's, uh, she, like, she is a half step away from, um, Catherine Deneuve from The Hunger. (laughs)
1: Uh, She is, oh my God.
0: Especially once she starts to get a little more spry. That's who I thought of. Right. Uh, But, uh, so, like, after this encounter... Uh, fantasy, uh, goes back inside and is like, Hey, Max had just bit me on the ass out there. Uh, and then they go out and, and pull up just the watermelon. So that's all good. And, uh, so once she disappears, we then see Annie is now out of the wheelchair and, uh, and she's saying, well, you know, the energy, all of you are bringing me energy, wink wink i'm not eating you or anything
1: um
0: <laughs> she doesn't say that but she might as well we we know what's going on here and uh let's see so we've got um the other girls start to look for mac they can't find her um fantasy sees auntie walk into the refrigerator from outside and disappear And, uh, so she tells everybody, but because her name is fantasy, nobody is buying any of her shit. Right. You know, it's all just like, I find fantasy and also tell us all about your, your dreams about the, uh, the teacher that you've got a crush on and stuff. And we, we get some dream sequences of that as well.
1: Tell us about that spaceship that you saw landing out of the field behind the house.
0: Right. Right. It's just what, like, have you seen, um, uh, they look like people yet. Oh, not yet. It's on the list. Okay, it, it's quite good, but it, it's that scenario of like a friend showing up and just spouting crazy talk, and you're like, "Well, huh? It <laughs> is getting late.
1: <laughs> I need to wash something."
0: Yeah, I honestly, I was gonna uh, clip my dog's nails. And I need you to leave now. Uh, we, just,
1: we just bought this iguana, and he's real needy.
0: He just <laughs> he's not good around people yet.
1: So, right. Uh,
0: but we'll let you know. We'll have you over some other time when you're not talking crazy.
1: Right. So, Thanks, crazy guy.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so I think next on the chopping block is Sweet, who has been dressed as a maid and is cleaning up because she's so sweet. Right. And... Uh, and I don't know where the you know kind of kawaii maid outfit came from. I assume that's something that you know Auntie just had in a closet somewhere. Um, but yeah, so she goes into um, I guess kind of a shed attached to the house or near the house, and um, ends up getting uh, swallowed by mattresses, mattress I, mattress arm matrix Ma- matrixes Yes. Um, after uh, seeing a doll and in traditional horror movie fashion, and that's one of the few times you will ever hear in traditional horror movie fashion attached to this movie. Uh, but she ends up uh, sort of becoming the doll. Like when the girls go to look for her, they find all her clothes, but she's gone, but there's all these mattresses. When they peel those back, there's a Weirdly oversized doll. No, I guess not weirdly. I mean, Sweet was probably a, you know, normal sized girl to begin with, but this doll's pretty big. Like, it's.
1: Yeah, it's maybe half her size.
0: Yeah, it's it's bigger than Chucky, you know, and then say smaller than Old Chief Woodenhead. It's in between those.
1: That's a perfect doll measurement ratio.
0: I'm trying to get my dolls to life. (laughs) Scale. <laughs> uh, and now let us never speak of Old Chief Woodenhead again.
1: From uh, on a scale
0: of Barbie to the Stay Puffed
1: Marshmallow Man. <laughs> right.
0: This is <laughs> more Barbie than Stay Puffed, but there,
1: it's not <laughs> without Stay Puffed esque qualities. Yes. Um, There's a pallidness there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this was
0: also one of the first times in the movie where... Um, you start to get this weird sexuality creeping in. And uh, and now I'll begin sounding like the pervert I truly am, um, because this is the first time they're like, hey, I found a bra, and here's her panties. And I only mention that because this is really the first time you get a hint of that. And as we go through the movie, sexuality becomes more and more front and center.
1: Well, and also in that scene, one of the other girls sniffs the panties that they find.
0: That's true. Yes. Yes. Which is also super weird. Yes.
1: Yeah, so we kind of went from zero to at least 35 or 40 and a pretty, pretty quick jump.
0: Yeah. It's yeah, you're right. It's not the full 60. We, we, you know, we're still in town, Right, but, but yeah, it's, <laughs> we're quick off the line.
1: We have not hit that straight away yet.
0: No, no. Um, and Kung Fu, for her part, after doing some battle with, you know, supernatural pieces of wood that come at her, she spends most of the movie in just her skivvies. Like, a you know, a, kind of a, a shirt and panties uh, s- situation. Um, and, you know, and presumably these are all high school girls-ish. I think they're, they're uh, described as such. Mm-hmm. And um, there is there is not quite the same taboo about female sexuality or it's cer- certainly something that pops up in movies more uh, from Japan, even than other Asian films. Uh, this idea of like burgeoning sexuality and especially when it comes to, to women uh, and young girls. Um, the, the, certainly more than you see in Western films and that kind of thing. Like high school sexuality is not something that people want to think about too much. Um,
1: and to to clarify, I mean we're nowhere near like a pink movie here.
0: Oh it, no no no! It there like none of this is really. Well, I was going to say none of it's for titillation. I don't know that that's true. Um, right. It's not e- exploitative. In the same way as a pink film, like pink films are just softcore porn. Sure, um, that that is not what this is. Although there is nudity, and there is, especially towards the the end of the film, um, much more of a suggestion of sexuality. But again, we'll we'll get there. Um, yeah so um let's see where were we uh oh let's get to gorgeous who uh in theory was going (laughs) to be our main character in this movie and instead she ends up um getting uh, like she starts uh checking herself out in the mirror and then we start seeing like her mother and then her aunt And then she becomes a pillar of fire as if God himself had damned her. Um, and then she just kind of is that pillar of fire and and we assume is, uh, uh, taken by the house at that point. And which is kind of a nice touch because uh, like fantasy and gorgeous are the two characters that seem to be our final girls. If we were following that format. Right. You know, uh, one of the two, I would probably argue fantasy seems to be the one that would be, uh, the, the lone survivor at the end. Although gorgeous would not go so quickly in this film. And she kind of disappears for a big chunk of this movie.
1: She does. And you don't even really miss her. No, there's, there's too much other madness going on to be thinking, Oh, hell, where's that one girl?
0: You know? Yeah. And, and the only reason, uh, I, I feel like you could miss her is again, because the, the movie follows her. Like it's the story of her aunt and, you know, her stepmom and father and all that stuff. Like we get more backstory about this character than any other. And then she just goes away for a while, but that's just the free will and style that house likes to, uh, to employ. Uh, yeah,
1: again, don't get comfortable.
0: Yeah, yeah, with with any particular character or any kind of narrative hook. Um, that's
1: <laughs> Or any thought of linear storytelling.
0: Yeah, in that regard, it's no Winter Beast, but you can see where Winter Beast got its... God. There it is. I, there you know, it is. It was only a matter of time before, in this episode in particular, <laughs> before Winter Beast reared its claymation head. Oh,
1: my goodness.
0: Oh, it's so good. Um. now let's switch topics. We're just going to talk about winter beast. Um, but anyway, so, um, the, we finally do see, um, the house kind of going crazy at this point. Like all the girls, uh, get into some weirdness. Um, we've got, um, melody becomes kind of fixated with this, uh, melody at at the piano in the house. um, We've got uh, Kung Fu battling, as I said before, you know, flying chunks of wood. Um, we're running around like we're trying to use the phone, but the phone's not working. Um, then Gorgeous shows back up after kind of being AWOL for a bit and is like, I'm going to go to town and get help because of all the weird stuff going on here. <laughs> and so she she walks out, and then all of a sudden all the doors and windows are locked, and, the, and uh, Prof to her credit is like, Oh, well, auntie lives alone. And maybe there's some sort of timer that locks everything down. Uh, as she tries to rationalize her way out of this, uh, this situation,
1: it's just totally irrational. and Cannot be reasoned with. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, let's see, where are we? Oh yeah. All right. So we've got max head in a jar is found or hand rather, uh, is found in a jar. Um, then let's get to the piano scenes. Yes. Shall this, we? Yes. This is really one of the most memorable and certainly one of the big centerpiece, uh, scenes of the film, um, involving melody and her, uh, seemingly obsessive playing of, uh, this tune, the love song from house as I like to think of it. And I mean, you describe it. It's, it's, maybe the best well it's not the best part of the movie but it's it's one of the parts of the movie where it's like shit is popping off finally in this film yeah
1: well she's playing the piano and the piano keys start to glow different colors and then the cat's eyes light up like they do sure sure and then um as she's playing the piano eats melody's fingers I'm not really sure how that happens. It's just she suddenly holds up her hands, and she's like, my fingers are gone, and there are just bloody stumps there.
0: Yeah, and uh, the piano, to its credit, doesn't stop there, uh, but continues to chomp away.
1: Eventually, the piano devours her whole, and kind of chops her up into some pieces so that you can see inside the piano, and you can see like her head is in one very specific section, and her torso is over here, and it's like one leg kind of flopping over. It's like she's been dissected very neatly and kind of placed in blocks inside the piano. Meanwhile, the outside of the piano, her legs are still sticking out as the piano continues to chomp away at her and it's right around this point with the legs that we see Melody's head much like Mac's head just kind of float over and look at herself while she's being eaten and all she can say is oh my that's naughty
0: (laughs) right well because you can kind of like she's bent over a little bit and, and so forth again there are all these little touches of sexuality that pop up through the film um
1: but, uh, that's a really weird form of voyeurism.
0: Yeah, yeah. And again, there's a lot of this, uh, like com- uh, shot compositing, and a lot of you know chroma key stuff uh, at, at work here as well. So it
1: all. I like. I, I think of it like when I used to watch Star Wars on the USA Network before they digitally redid everything, and you could see like all the little optical blocks that the Tie Fighters were in. So they were in little tiny squares flying across the screen. That's exactly what this is like. Yeah. Yeah. Except
0: not even as clean as that. Right. You know, it's yeah, but it it is that style of, of kind of special effects work, um, which makes sense because, you know, it came out about the same time. Um, yeah, it's despite the kind of crudeness of the effects work, uh, one of the things about Halsoo is that it's just—it's so inventive with this stuff. Like us describing her getting eaten by this piano d- comes nowhere close to doing it justice. It is so weird and so—I um, need mean, I to stop using that word "weird" to describe this movie, but it's just so apropos. It's—it's um, it's this weird. I almost did it again. It is a combination <laughs> of both silliness and humor and also the dismemberment of a young girl that creates this tone. Unlike any, anything certainly that we've covered on the show.
1: You kind of got to think Max Senate meets the guinea pig series.
0: Yeah. 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 There, there is a bit of nastiness and, and gore in at work in this film, not a ton, but it's certainly bloody. Yeah. Yeah and but but coupled yeah with this weird sort of looney tunes madcap as you uh, said before the show <laughs> um kind of spirit and it's it's an uh, like it's a tone that shouldn't work and it does and maybe that's one of the things that makes uh house so special is that it it rides this very razor's edge between horror and comedy in a way that I've never seen a film do. Um, you know, I mean like later there, there's stuff like evil dead Two And, um, uh, Saturday
1: the 14th, Saturday.
0: Yeah. And you know, (laughs) (laughs) uh,
1: that was not a serious suggestion
0: by the way. Uh, I was thinking like Tucker and Dale versus evil is one that kind of, uh, plays a little more towards comedy than horror, even though it, it, it's gruesome at times. Um, but rappers. Yeah. Yeah. Or even tremors, you know, to yeah. in, in the same vein. Um, but, but those films aren't as overtly silly as something like this. Like, cause, cause this movie just goes totally off the rail sometimes with it. It's comedic, uh, like some of the gags are just like, there's a dude who ends up turning into a bunch of bananas because he calls something bananas. Like a human shaped pile of bananas is behind the wheel of a car in this movie.
1: I never understood that. I, you know, I it's, don't get it. he goes to the watermelon stand, right? And the guy's like, you don't like watermelons? And he's like, no, I don't like watermelons. What do you like? I like bananas. Bananas, bananas, bananas. And he just keeps saying bananas over and over again until uh, he turns into a banana person. Banana man.
0: I like to think this is the inspiration for the pancake boy at the end of Cabin Fever. (laughs) Only Eli Roth didn't have the balls to have the kid turn into a bunch of pancakes.
1: (laughs) I want to believe that. (laughs) I would (laughs) like to... I am choosing to believe that, as a matter of fact. That is now part of my belief system.
0: <laughs> I'm glad I could introduce something to your cinematic vocabulary. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, but then again, I also, at the end of the day, don't believe that Eli Roth has seen a lot of films. Um,
1: but, uh, all right, so. But he knows a lot of people who
0: have. Yes. And yes. that's the
1: next best thing.
0: Yeah, it's almost as good as being talented. Um, now there, there's you know there there's some two good Eli Roth movies out there. Um, by the way, one of them is not knock knock. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> um, so uh, as as the girls are dwindling in number, and also Auntie at one point does kind of a jig with a skeleton. I don't think there's any reason to skip over this point uh, to the laugh-in style of uh, of oddity in this film. Um, Yeah, there's a floating skeleton um, that Annie kind of describes away as saying that what her 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 fiance, yeah, yeah,
1: her fiance was a doctor and he used to examine patients in there, right? In that room, the skeleton is.
0: Yes, but the skeleton also floats around and dances and has eyeballs.
1: At least one. Like, it just has one eyeball.
0: Yeah, and that's still one more than you would expect out of a skeleton.
1: Okay, fair enough. But, yeah, it's... One ball is all you need. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Lance Armstrong can tell you that. Um, yeah, it's... I, I kind of have this weird throwback to, uh, like, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers when I see that scene, it's that level of effects work of like, what was the villain in that? Like something sinister Rita repulsa, Rita repulsa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like if, she, if it were her dancing with a skeleton, it would be the same scene.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So I, I, we might have to tabulate how many really bizarre references are made in this episode. Um, <laughs> But, uh, the, so the remaining girls, uh, go, uh, upstairs and they find gorgeous there who is now kind of possessed by the house or the end or the ants using her body. Something. And, yeah. And there's it's never really
1: made clear. So I guess we have to go with the house.
0: I, yeah, I think it's just kind of a possession thing that like the, the ant is using her to remain young since she was about to die. I think because
1: well, she brought friends. Right. Well,
0: and she can eat the friends, which we see her doing at one point. Right. And, but, so, Gorgeous is in the bridal gown that Auntie wore, and also has her journal, which basically says she lived alone for a long time, uh, had this... um uh, the, like there were, the, she got the cat blanche and that and but the the, aunt, the important part of this is that she died waiting for the fiance to come back and then any unmarried girl that comes to the house she eats you know that old story
1: yeah that old chestnut
0: yeah <laughs> And that the the cat is, you know, sort of her familiar. Right. Um, and there's also a, a pretty rad painting of the cat. And in one of the main rooms, which I, you know, you see it on the cover of some of the editions of the movie and it's awesome. Uh, but so we get this from gorgeous uh, who then reappears because her head is giant and she just comes out of a doorway, and uh, basically says, "Like, hey, any time that the you know a- uh, auntie or, uh, in this case, giant-sized, gorgeous head um, eats somebody, that they kind of are absorbed by her." And one of the creepier things in this movie is this notion, uh, which we see almost Elm Street style of all the victims as disembodied heads kind of floating around in the, in this, you know, color space. Yeah. And I, that's really unsettling to me on some level. That's like purgatory head pong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But they're all, uh, you know, there's this weird, Piece that goes along with it as well. <laughs> they don't seem to be terribly upset about the fact that they've been eaten.
1: Well, they're very polite about it. Yeah, they just—they're—they're they're just glad they could help. They just—they just, just want to serve.
0: Yeah, it's—it's it's <laughs> very strange. And then, so they decide. Okay, the source of her power is the cat. So what they need to do is uh, get Kung Fu to high kick. The cat painting that's really rad, mm-hmm. except in the process of doing so, she gets attacked by the lamp and is being eaten by that
1: well let's let's clarify that for the listeners too it's It's a giant light covering that comes down from the ceiling almost like almost like a chandelier, but the way it looks really it's the flying guillotine, yeah. It is a square flying guillotine, and she cannot get it off her head, and she's getting, of course, electrocuted by the bare wires inside of it. So there's lots of jumping and heads in a box. But it's also expanding and devouring her. Yes.
0: So Because (laughs) a a simple uh, electrocution is not what House is about. It's about how do we do this in the, the most bizarre possible manner. Um, so being electrocuted and then eaten by the, you know, lampshade, but then not, not to, uh, to upset the apple cart, but, uh, an odd thing happens next. (laughs) What? Uh, her
1: something strange,
0: her disembodied (laughs) lower half, Manages to uh, kind of wriggle free, I suppose, or is just bitten in half and still makes its journey to high kick the rat cat painting, which leads to um, a real freak out by the house. Again, very in style <laughs> where there's a lot of Dutch angles and color changes. Yep. And then blood starts flowing out of this thing
1: spewing out of the cat's painting, the painting of the cat's mouth. Yes. And becomes it becomes a blood fountain.
0: Yeah. It's, it's the evil dead to geyser of blood. Yeah. Which slowly begins filling up. And at this point, the only people left alive are, uh, fantasy and, um, prof, prof, and prof kind of does a Jack from Titanic. And gets, and and like falls off the, the, uh, what are they on? Like a table or something. Yeah. And, uh, they're floating on the ocean of blood coming out of the cat painting, which again, you hear all the time, but that's what's going on in this movie too. (laughs) Um, and Prof ends up sinking into the blood or, well, she gets kind of grabbed and it's sinking into the pl- the the blood, and then again there's this weird kind of semi erotic. I swear this is almost the ballet of uh, Piranha 3D. <laughs> the underwater semi lesbian wow. ballet, um, except just with prop. But it's it it again. It's sort of that be careful what you wish for thing, even though the movie doesn't really traffic in that all the time. It just kind of does it every now and again, but it's, you know, right. prof, like being bared and beautiful and all that, and then devoured by the house.
1: Well, yeah, because magically her clothes disappear. Yep. Yep. So there's that hint of sexuality. And of course she's there in a literal you know, lake of blood. I so she's don't know what you're
0: getting at. Oh, let me explain. (laughs) Yes, I'm a repressed heterosexual. Explain to me. (laughs) What is going on with this symbolism?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting how she kind of just goes from, um, I'm just smart, and I like books, and I don't know anything about my own self or how I feel about anything sexually, but all of a sudden she's naked, drowning in blood, and she simply disappears into it. It's almost like she becomes... Uh, like she's finally made peace with her femininity somehow and just dissolves into it and becomes it. Am I thinking too much about this, Bo? I don't think so.
0: Okay, good. I think that is ultimately kind of where this movie lands is this, this idea of, uh, of, of growing sexuality in adulthood with, with these young girls. And, um, and so fantasy, um, she ends up uh getting got as well by the house like there nobody really makes it out um she uh she like gorgeous shows up on the staircase as the blood's filling up and Fantasy paddles over to her, thinking it's her friend, or maybe just wanting to believe it's her friend at this point, after being terrorized for hours on end at the, at this stage in the film. And Gorgeous reaches out for, her, and then you know we kind of fade out. Um. So then we have the arrival of Ryoko, who is uh, uh Gorgeous's stepmother,
1: the wind machine.
0: Yeah. And, and that returns in this final scene with, <laughs> with her showing up. There's, and, and in fact, it's kind of an extended scene. Um, there's a, uh, a great new show on Net- Netflix called Lady Dynamite um, that opens with a parody of a hair care uh, product, like a, a, sh- a woman shampoo. And it's that kind of effect. And it just goes on forever. And actually... Um, Uh, Obayashi was a commercial director prior to making this film. And I, I wonder if he's not just, you know, kind of taking a piss out of himself to a degree of including these very, very seventies commercial tropes.
1: It would make Uh, sense to
0: me if he were. Yeah. I, I do feel like, I mean, there's not a frame in this movie that it doesn't feel like Obayashi is having a good time. Um, it, it does seem like he, he, again, something I, I had read in a uh, criticism of the film and, you know, not negative, just actual professional criticism of the film, uh, saying that, um, Obayashi made this movie as if he thought he would never be able to make another one again. And so decide to do everything that m- movies do. Um, and I, I think that maybe, yeah. you know, I mean, he went on to do other stuff, but man, it is a real kitchen sink affair with this film. Uh, but getting back to uh, Ryoko and and Gorgeous. So uh, she shows up. Uh, the stepmom shows up. Uh, Gorgeous is there again in uh, very traditional. Uh, I think she has the bridal gown on again at this point and uh, is all alone. Nobody is... Uh, is around but her and she invites Ryoko and in. she doesn't exit the house, which I think is kind of a nice touch that she just kind of, you know, uh, slides the walls back to reveal the interior of the house and right. invites her in. And, uh, yeah. And then the stepmom goes in and there's, uh, you know, <laughs> almost a wasted line with, although <laughs> it's, it's quite good. When Gorgeous says, oh, my friends are around, they'll come out when they're resting now. But when they wake up, they'll be hungry and they'll come find you. Uh, You know, something to that effect. Right. And then the implication, though, is that Gorgeous just eats her right then anyway. Which seems weird. Um. Uh, again trying not to use that word with this film but i didn't didn't get that oh i really thought that the the ending of the movie kind of implied that she wasn't waiting for her that that's why it was so jarring to me because every time i watch this movie i'm like yeah why does she say that and then i feel like at the end of this movie she eats her anyway maybe i'm wrong maybe it's just like hey we're gonna sit down and have our tea ceremony Yeah,
1: because that's a very elaborate kneeling ceremony they go through.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I'm really not going to – I'm going to let my friends. But it makes sense to me that she would because this is an unmarried woman entering the house. True. So, I don't know. It's a little – there's a a bit of a question mark attached to that. Um, It's ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I could be reading it just the way that I I, – like, I'm inserting logic into this film that does not need to be there. Right. Um, because this movie is, you know, not necessarily what you would call a uh, super glued to narrative.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's pretty tenuous. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Nobuhiko Obayashi's House is the kind of movie where one has to wonder, how did this get made? We touch on this a bit more in the discussion later, but the history of Haosu is worth repeating. Nobuhiko Obayashi was a child of World War II, a young man during the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Obayashi was actually born in Hiroshima and lost all his childhood friends when the United States dropped the first atomic bombs there. Despite this tragic past, Obayashi did find success working as a commercial director, and when approached by Toho Studios to develop a new script, Obayashi jumped at the chance. Toho, for their part, had seen the money that Jaws brought in across the globe and decided that they wanted in on that blockbuster action. So, charged with coming up with the Japanese answer to Jaws, Obayashi went to his daughter Chigumi for ideas of what would scare her generation. Chigumi is the one responsible for the idea of a head being pulled from a well like a watermelon, the spooky clock, a house that eats girls, the futons falling on sweet, and even the now-familiar piano scene. Chigumi, it turns out, had a fear of her fingers being caught between the keys of the piano she played. And out of this adolescent mind came the menagerie of strangeness that makes up house. There are more mature elements within the tale, such as Andy's sense of loss at A Lover Lost in World War II, which is a not-so-oblique nod towards the trauma Obayashi himself experienced during war. Obayashi's co-writer on the film, Chiho Katsura, found Obayashi's jigsaw puzzle of ideas reminiscent of a story by Walter de la Mer, in which an old woman, visited by her granddaughters, locks them all in a trunk. When Katsura and Obayashi presented their finished script to Toho Studios, they rightfully wondered what the hell they'd gotten themselves into, in fact, not a single director at Toho wanted to make the movie, afraid it would end their careers. Obayashi, however, was undeterred. Toho would not allow him to make the movie himself, since he was not a member of Toho Studios, and that's how things worked at the time. So for two years, the script sat dormant while Obayashi continued to campaign for his odd little movie. Before principal filming began... Obayashi was shepherding the story into manga, a novelization, and a radio drama, in addition to printing business cards, saying that the movie had been greenlit. There was even a soundtrack release for the movie before a movie existed to be scored. The film was eventually greenlit completely, thanks to the success of the radio drama based on Obayashi and Katsura's script. Also, according to Obayashi, Toho was tired of making movies that were, and I quote, comprehensible. Willing to roll the dice, Toho finally relented and Obayashi was on his way to making House. Only a couple of the girls were anything like professional actors. They were mostly unknowns, drawn from pools of friends and family. The amateur cast posed some problems for Obayashi, who was not satisfied with the performances of his actors until he began playing music from the film on set to provide some context for performances. Filmed over the course of two months, House was shot on one of Toho's largest sets, Obayashi and his cameraman oversaw the visual effects of the film. His background in commercial work gave Obayashi a background with some of the visual gags used in the movie, and he wasn't overly concerned with their realism. While he stated that he wanted the film's effects to look somewhat childish in nature, he was still ready to admit that not every trick worked as he had envisioned, but his kitchen sink approach to effects work nonetheless creates a sense of surrealism in nearly every scene. When the movie was finally released in its native Japan, critics were not particularly kind to the movie. But who cares when you're making boatloads of money, and that's just what House did. Particularly among younger audiences, the movie was a rousing success, despite being released as the second part of a double bill with a romance film. It really didn't get much play outside of Japan until Janice Pictures nabbed up the movie for distribution as late as 2009. Now, Obayashi has gone on to direct over 50 films, but it's House, his first foray into genre work, and spawned by his daughter's imagination, that endures. It's a monolith of oddity, but it's also a staggering work of imagination, and one you should quickly add to your must-watch list if you've never seen it. Speaking of seeing a great movie, there's nothing better than experiencing something like House and being able to talk to fellow fans about the crazy stuff you've just seen. Why not come over to Legion Podcasts on Facebook? where you can find fans just like you, excited to talk about all kinds of horror films. There, you can also find some of our shows, too. You're listening to Jeffrey X. Martin on this show, and you can hear more of them on both Kiss the Goat, a celebration of all things satanic, and Screen Kings, a roundtable discussion by authors, including Jeff, examining the cinematic works taken from the stories of Stephen King. Most recently, they've released a show all about The Shining, and how maybe it's not as good as people remember it. So, come join us over on LegionPodcast.com and also Facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Hero Hero Go Show uh, for more information about this movie and chatting with like-minded fans as well. So, now, back to Symbolic Menstruation. I do like that you feel like in most scenes, if H.R. Puffin stuff showed up, it would not be shocking.
1: Damn! That's a great insight. It is very Croft, <laughs> yeah. And like every time I watch it, it's
0: it's the the use of the map painting and all the comp- uh, compositing and everything. It is so Sid and Marty Croft. It's disgusting, but I don't blame. <laughs> like I don't know my Sid and Marty uh, Croft chronology like I should, uh, <laughs> but you know, House is somewhere in that.
1: Neighborhood chronologically, um, yeah. Um, just, just let me think. Gosh, there were so many Croft iterations, but Puffin stuff was the early seventies, and then Sigmund and the Sea Monsters was like seventy-five. Yeah, that feels right. I, yeah, I was, I, I was a wee bairn uh, yeah. back then. Then there was the Croft Super Show, which spawned Electro Woman and Dinah Girl, and. Captain Cool and the Kongs, the horrible yeah. lamb band for kids. Yeah. Uh, they do good work. Um, really. Do they the do for work. treasures. Um, so
0: like house was originally supposed to be the Japanese jaws.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's such a weird Genesis for this film. Yeah. Yeah, it
0: was uh, – the idea was they want uh, – Toho is is the studio that did this and, and did a number of, you know, obviously very famous uh, uh, Japanese films. And uh, so they go to Obayashi, and they tell him to develop a script similar, at least in structure, to Jaws, which had come out in 75 uh, – is that right? 75? Yes. Right. And
1: it was, and was the first blockbuster.
0: Yes. And yeah, you know, made all the money that 1975 had. That's why we had the gas problems in the Carter administration. Yes.
1: Precisely.
0: Yeah. You can draw a straight
1: line from jaws to gas to lines. Carter. Yeah. Well, jaws, uh, Pinto Carter. Yes. Right. That's yes. And if that's you, the seventies.
0: That's all you need to know about the seventies. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Um. So Obiashi gets tasked with writing, not writing, but developing the script that would be house. And the, the other instruction aside from make us a Jaws was make sure it appeals to what we believe our target audience is, which is young girls. Like the, this is who we think is going to go see a movie like this.
1: Yes. and uh, preferably not prone to seizures. Hopefully not. Cause they're,
0: <laughs> yeah, this is definitely a movie where, you know, if you are prone to seizures and flashing lights and pregnant and, yeah. you know, have recently been on a roller coaster, maybe you shouldn't watch <laughs> house right away.
1: There are some stroboscopic effects.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, and animated cats, which again is incredibly <laughs> so rad. <great>. Yeah. <laughs> so, um but so obayashi went to uh r- rather than you know just develop the the script through normal means as as we would think of it um he went to his daughter chigumi who i want to say was 11 at the time that is correct and chigumi uh basically gave the world the story for house and I think kind of once you know that, this movie makes so much more sense.
1: It does. You know,
0: that this is just the rambling storyline of an 11-year-old Japanese girl.
1: Because really, this whole movie is like listening to your kid uh, tell you about a dream they had during a particularly high fever. (laughs) <laughs> yes. This girl's head popped off, and then she bit this other girl in the butt, and then she turned into half a watermelon. Yeah. Okay. More baby aspirin over here, please. Right. Right. I.
0: You know. We've elevated from rubbing Jack Daniels on your gums to just pouring <laughs> it straight down your gullet at bedtime. Um. Uh, yeah. It's. It. It is that kind of stream of consciousness. You know. And then. And then. And then. Uh, There is that feel to it, but that filtered through the mind of, you know, an adult uh, who then tried to make all this stuff work cinematically and not only to make the, the sillier stuff funny, but to make the movie scary at times as well. And you know, the one thing you hear about this movie all the time is that it's um it, it's bizarre and there's all this, you know, weird shit that happens in the movie. Um but I think there are a number of of sequences and images that are like
1: genuinely unsettling. Am I wrong? Oh no. You're completely right. Let's go uh back towards the beginning. There are a couple of things in the scene where Um, Ryoko first shows up besides the fact that she is constantly windblown a lot of that scene is shot through God, how do I describe it? It's a door that has a lot of different glass pieces offset from each other so you almost get kind of a mirror effect in the corners of, of the glass it's kind of beveled so you're looking at first of all you're just seeing um, the father and gorgeous, but while they're being filmed through this glass um, door, it's almost like you can see how compartmentalized they actually are as a family unit. Because it keeps that glass keeps dividing them up into different sections, different sections, different sections, and it's a really interesting thing to watch, especially when Ryoko shows up. Because at the end of that scene, there's a split screen effect where Gorgeous walks into the house and she's free of that compartmentalization, you can kind of see Ryoko's white scarf hanging in the air for a moment before it flutters away because, you know, oh no, I've come into this family and screwed everything up. Which, it was already screwed up. Did you get any indication of impropriety between um, Gorgeous and her father?
0: No, I I, I never felt like there was any anything incestuous in that relationship. I, you know, I think there is the element of, uh, you know, kind of the electro complex stuff, right. Of, of her being jealous of her father's attention. Um, but I didn't go any further than that. Maybe I, I, you know, it's because sometimes I, I think that I'm too dark and don't allow myself to feel the feelings that I have. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, ah, no. I'm sorry, was that too confessional? Oh, no, um, no, that's fine. Yeah, I I don't know that I ever felt like it was sexual, but there were because of the stuff we get into with like, you know, all the bridal uh the bridal gown uh later in the film and and of course the, you know, river of blood uh right. affecting all these young girls. Um yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't think that you can totally divorce the idea of sexuality with that relationship because there is that component within every young girl to an extent. Um, but I, I don't know that I felt like it was of particular focus. Okay. But, well,
1: not really particular focus. I'm just thinking of the part where she's like, oh, I have to fix your sleeve. And something about sure. that just, just felt very, I mean, both daughterly and wifely at the same time. So I guess that's a relationship dynamic like that, that kind of family structure, maybe that's something that can't be avoided. Yeah, and
0: because so much of the movie, and I, you know, I, I, I don't think we're tipping our hand too much since we've been kind of dancing around this anyway. Um, that much of the movie seems to be about, you know, girls coming of, uh, of age. That the river of blood does represent the idea of menzies.
1: It's the smell. Yeah. It's- <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's
0: there, there is within uh, a lot of Japanese films, uh, in particular, although, you know, certainly, uh, Western films are, are, I want to say guilty. That's almost a little too harsh, uh, can be accused of the same thing, um, of the idea of like sexuality between young women being something that is, uh, um, if not natural, at least something that is on a voyeuristic level that we enjoy seeing and the, you know, house traffics and some of that as well. Um, you know, there, there are scenes, uh, that aren't outright, you know, memento Mori on you, uh, where it gets all, uh, lesbian. All right. But, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of nudity in the film. Uh, not a lot, but more than you would expect, I think from, from a movie about, you know, high school girls. Um, that's not a slasher. Right. And, um, yeah, it, I mean, there is consistently through the film ideas of growing up, getting married, uh, you know, these ideas of sexuality that at the end of the day, the movie seems to be about, you know, um, adulthood and, and, and femininity, uh, adult femininity, in particular, consuming the
1: child. Uh, I think that's half of it. <clears throat> um, I, I think that that's absolutely correct, but I think within the character of Gorgeous, um, kind of her final transformation, as you said, she sees her mother, she sees her aunt, uh, she sees... I think she sees Ryoko. So it's all of these... It's almost like her her. Um, Legacy, like everyone from her ancestors, the sexuality that has come through this family line is all now gathered up into one vessel. And that's gorgeous. And, you know, we all learn from, you know, we learn from our parents. We learn from our ancestors, get little, you know, how to be. So I think that's interesting, too, that she's like the next in line for this kind of voracious. Um, sexuality that just can't be controlled and she kind of becomes a monster yeah yeah I feel like I had a point and lost it so if you no. can find it somewhere and pose to that would be great <laughs> I, I think what
0: we're we're getting at and and, and what you know you uh, in particular were building towards is there is a, a rich history of the monstrous female uh, within Japanese or um Again, you know, I, I hate to keep picking on on the Japanese, but you know, especially at this time, uh, and and even you know, up to and including films like Audition, um, there are a lot of overtures in these films about you know either sexually liberated or uh, sexually expressive women, um, being considered monstrous that like there's something about the idea of, of the, the female libido that can be, um, kind of frightening. You know, there, there's something about that, uh, that, you know, uh, here's, here's something that, uh, directly addresses your show screen Kings. But, you know, Carrie is very much about that as well. Of, um, the, the idea of adulthood being this violent change. And, and also being, uh, you know, with Carrie, maybe not so much, but, um, within this film, I I do think there's, uh, the notion of, um, the, the horrific woman, the empowered woman being somewhat horrific. Right. I'm thinking
1: Uh, of in the realm of the senses right now
0: too. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there, there's so much of that that, that, that runs through a lot of, uh, Japanese films like you know Kuroneko going way back yeah um it you know it, we're in the same waters if if slightly different depths um but yeah i mean house is as, as colorful and vibrant and energetic a movie as it is and it it certainly is that um yeah there's definitely some some depth to the film that you can I think you can kinda miss it. I you know, I mean like you and I are in in the position where I think maybe we watch movies with a critical eye whether we want to or not. Yeah. You know, like if you see somebody suddenly submerge in water and come out of it, you like you understand the the vocabulary of, of symbolism. Right uh, for stuff like that, or you know, characters drinking a lot of water or something like that. Um, and the same thing goes with blood. You know that there that is a transitional uh, medium for characters in films. And yeah, so it's it's hard not to see this film. And like you said, you know, when you get to a point where you know high school girls are dissolving in a sea of blood and, and being transformed by that, then yeah, it's, you know, you don't have to be your Sigmund Freud's,
1: uh, <laughs> to figure that it's, one. It's hard to miss that symbolism. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, it, but it's also couched in a film that spends all its time trying to dazzle you as a viewer, you know, like, <laughs> right. It's making a point, but it's, it's, the me- the vehicle of that message is almost too loud, you know, <laughs> like it is, it is so uh, wildly um, excited to, to catch your eye at every scene. Like there's all kinds of weird stuff in this movie with like stuff moving in the background and, you know, uh, one of my favorite shots in the movie actually, and it's just kind of daring. It's, it's such a bold shot, but it's during the piano sequence when, uh, Melody is getting eaten. And you actually see part of that scene through a fishbowl. Yes. And you're like, you ballsy son of a bitch of doing this, this com- like, uh, chroma key effect. <laughs> And throwing a fishbowl in front of it. <laughs> and I, I like, I, there's plenty of listeners that are probably thinking, like, what's well, the big deal? The big deal is that shows off the seams in your effect way more. And uh, uh, Obayashi just doesn't care. It's like, yeah, you get it. Like, the style is more important than the material he's working
1: with. I think another thing that kind of points to the whole femininity aspect of this is. For the first, I'd say, 20 minutes of this movie, it looks like a Japanese remake of Grease. (laughs) Yes, yes. That is accurate. And these girls haven't really become the pink ladies yet, but they're well on their way. You know, had they survived the events of the film. It's very musical. It's very light. And then as soon as they enter that house, the... Whatever you want to call it, the House of Puberty. You know, like nobody comes, <laughs> nobody comes out unscathed.
0: I don't think it says it on the mailbox, but if you write that address on the envelope, it's going to get there.
1: It's going to go right there.
0: Yeah, House of Puberty, <laughs> and Japan.
1: And we have to talk about the soundtrack.
0: Yeah, it's pretty glorious.
1: It is. It is just one huge earworm. I mean, probably the only things I've heard catchier in horror movies have maybe been everybody but you from Night Train to Terror or that damn fall break song from The Mutilator. Oh, God, that song. See, it just gets in your head and it won't Uh. let go. But there's like three or four major themes in-house that just are repeated over and over and over again. And you even get to see the band who does the soundtrack and the train station scene. Yep, they're all yep. waving at people and hey, have a good time and they're singing about love and afros and shit and it's just it just feels so sugary. It's like living inside of a teen beat magazine for a while and then shit gets dark. So. Yeah, but the closing
0: song is equally kind of upbeat and great. Yeah, right. And yeah, like the closing song is great. Like the the darker stuff is is like you know the melody that Melody plays, um, and and that you hear throughout uh, the, the film. Love theme from Halsu. Yeah, the love theme from Halsu. Uh, it is like I re- that is really catchy as well. But yeah, there's this like crazy like. Uh, you know, the monkeys on Scooby doo moments (laughs) where all of a sudden you just break into song for no reason. And it, yeah, but it, but the soundtrack is incredible. Like it is as energetic as the camera work and the color scheme, you know, like all of every element of this movie is just pushing towards that one end of making, the movie captivating, right? And and it is like th- this. You know, I, I want to say the movie's about ninety minutes long. Uh, no, I don't have the runtime sitting in front. it's of a of little
1: it. bit longer, like yeah, like but one twelve something like
0: that. Yeah, something like that, and it never like loses any momentum. It, in fact, it just gets faster and faster and faster. Until you get to you know the the kind of epilogue of, of Ryoko showing up at the end of of the film, and that's really the first breath you take in in terms of pacing for this movie for you know thirty minutes, yeah. And that's a long haul. I mean, that's them's wreck numbers um, <laughs> <laughs> where you just put the hammer down and don't don't lift it up and it's it's not just the scares i mean that's kind of what what wreck does is it just you know builds tension and tension and tension for that time whereas house is just like well look at this you know that's kind of the game that house plays all through the film look at this okay lo, like now here's an animated cat jumping out of a painting and then here here's it vomiting blood but way too right. much and Here's this, you know, nude girl d- dissolving in the blood. And then here's uh, Gorgeous descending the stairs in her bridal outfit, in the white bridal outfit, as opposed to this ocean of red that is appearing before us. And, you know, like, that's a few minutes at the end of the movie, but it just keeps doing that. Like, that's ignoring the stuff about, like, Kung Fu's lower half kicking the painting to set right. the whole scene off. And her getting killed before that. And, you know, I mean, it's just bam, bam, bam. And all this stuff happens. It's partly nonsensical, but there's something that feels, I I guess, because of the of, of the world that Obayashi creates in this film where you do feel like anything can happen. It doesn't, for me as a viewer, at least ever feel like it's too much. You know, it, it all feels like this kind of heightened magical realism. Um, not even, I mean, that's not even appropriate because there's nothing realistic about this movie. It's just, it's just this weird fantasy fairy tale gore film that has young girls becoming women and then getting naked
1: and then getting eaten.
0: And then getting eaten by another girl.
1: Yeah, but not <laughs> like that.
0: Yeah, but not in the pink way, as we've said. <laughs> uh, that's a different podcast.
1: Yeah. Um, it's such an idealized version of of what becoming a woman is like. You know, because you've got that, those first 20 grease minutes and there's... Lots of sugary pop music going on. It's like, yay, we were thinking about butterflies and trains and stuff like that. Oh, I have a I have a cramp. Oh shit. And then yeah. that's it. It's done. Welcome to the House of Fun. It's <laughs> just a great madness song. Thank uh, you. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> More people should listen to Madness. That's just I agree. That, that's common knowledge. Um yeah I, you're, you're right it it everything about this movie is, is sort of the platonic ideal writ large you know yeah. it's it, it's all just that like the the character names reflecting the personalities of the characters and all that stuff it's just all like there there's nothing complicated about that stuff except when it gets insidiously smart about that stuff. Right. Um, you know, and to,
1: gorgeous is, and gorgeous is the one who ends up really just owning it. She's like, yeah, I'm going to embrace what I am now and just run. Right. And,
0: but I'm also going to be villainous as a result. You know, that's, that's where uh, you,
1: yeah, that's true.
0: That's where you end with that. Characters are being, you know, in house two, the second story, house <laughs> two.
1: um, <laughs> Where she eats, are you gross? Yeah, that's my favorite part. <sighs> if there were a cat or
0: puppy in this movie, god damn it.
1: <laughs> I've
0: I've got a real weakness for that cat or puppy. I'm, I won't lie. I, I don't care what genetic horrors we have to endure to get to a cat or puppy. As yeah. long as we get there, the journey's worth it.
1: Well, I, with the human centipede, I think we're at least starting that research. Yeah, no, I put money
0: in that direction. Um, <laughs> I, I donate to a few causes, like Doctors Without Borders, right? puppies for Bo. Uh, My favorite
1: uh, genome.
0: Right. <laughs> I've tried it. Uh, I've tried a few experiments uh, uh, personally, but I just don't have the medical background. I, I think to make that work. You should uh, send the results to like
1: twenty six
0: and me. Yeah. <laughs> Uh oh man so i i but as we're kind of wrapping things up here uh i don't want to go too far without reiterating how entertaining this movie is it's so much fun you know it like i know we we were talking about somewhat heavy subjects like you know female empowerment and female uh, uh puberty and, um, pink films, you know, <laughs> important things,
1: right? All those important facets of, a, of growing up.
0: Yes. And, you know,
1: for, for a young boy, a
0: pink film is, is really maybe the greatest thing. Ever.
1: <laughs> it may, yeah, it may be. Uh,
0: but, um, you know, how is it, like, that seems to be its primary motivation. Um, you know, there, there kind of, a, a, a story, about how the executives at Toho um, read the script and were like we are not making this movie. What the f- what is this? What have you done? <laughs> and they did a radio version of it which turned out to be very popular. And so Toho decided despite their best their best instincts to let Obayashi make this movie. And even the crew, because, uh, Obayashi was not, uh, you know, the way that the films were done in Japan, uh, they were done by crews that worked for the studio were employed by Toho. Um, Obayashi was not, and, but still had the, the pull to kind of make the movie because of the, uh, the response to the radio drama. And even the crews, uh, that, that worked under him that were Toho employees, Um, even those crews were like, this is nonsense. This doesn't make any sense at all. This is going to be garbage. And it seems like Obayashi was really the only person on set, even though, you know, all reports are that the set was very upbeat and blah, blah, blah. But uh, that Obayashi was the only one who thought the movie not necessarily was going to make sense, but was going to be effective. Everyone else thought they were kind of working on trash. Uh, which I think is kind of great. You know, it's the, the little movie that could in a lot of ways and, you know, and Obayashi has said some stuff, which you'll, you know, you'll hear in the kind of the interstitial segment about, um, the effects work and so forth that it was, he was not necessarily striving for fidelity, shall we say it right. was, it was more the impact of impact of the effects and the visuals that he could. Manage, you know, any at the end of the day, he wanted it to feel like an eleven-year-old girl's imagination, even though there's some pretty direct, <laughs> you know, yeah. puberty references in there that are maybe not what an eleven-year-old girl would, you know, like, you know,
1: that I've, I've been thinking I've never about, been an eleven-year-old
0: girl. This is true, but I, it's hard for me to think that having been an eleven-year-old boy. I certainly had no handle on sexual maturation in in an allegorical manner.
1: Yeah. True. True. And girls are more advanced then. You didn't bleed the first time you got an erection either, I hope. Uh, I hope there was some kind of weird, you know, Von Trier action going on. The first time, no. (laughs) Subsequently, (laughs) let's say, you know,
0: he without sin. Um. Oh no, I'm right there with you. That's (laughs) right. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's we've (laughs) all. Junior year was rough.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like (laughs) once you discover (laughs) that particular trick that the human male can do all by his lonesome. Yeah, there are times when, let's say, you become too enthusiastic.
1: Side effects may include chafing. (laughs) Right. Sometimes shower sting. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Also, a true story in three words, don't use Vapor Rub. Yikes. Oh yeah. a very, very poor idea on my part. Yeah. Great yes. Right in theory, not so much an execution. I mean you've got you've got
0: the texture right. hmm It's just you don't want to use anything that has what doctors call an active ingredient. <laughs> That's your rule of thumb for for lube.
1: Yeah, yeah. Specifically, something called mentholatum. Yeah, I don't even know why I thought that was a good idea.
0: Uh, well, you know, I mean, because it sounds like it could kill Superman. <laughs> kids are dumb, and kids are dumb, and teenage boys in particular are a special kind of stupid. Oh no, kidding! It is, uh, you know, not that I'm saying I want to trade places with the girls in in Hausu.
1: Well no, but I mean this is why the girls get house too, and you and I get porkies.
0: <laughs> right? There is there is a, certainly a joie de vivre <laughs> that exists in house too, that maybe Porkies doesn't capture. Uh, it's more yeah, yeah, it's more Eddie Dieson inspired lunacy than right. Was he was Deason in Porkies? Am I getting that wrong? Uh
1: Deason was not in Porkies. It feels like he should have been. Uh, he was in Midnight Madness. Does that count? Um, yeah, it does. I mean, the okay. Michael
0: J. Fox crossover there is right on. Is, is still good. With uh, okay. Justine Bateman, is that was she in that?
1: Um,
0: who, who was the girl? Oh, da, 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 Could da, da, da.
1: have been Daphne Zanuga as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, For a while there, they were kind of interchangeable. Um, God, was that Justine Bateman? That's crazy if it was. Yeah, now I can't I, remember.
0: I can't remember. It, like it could have been Justine Bateman, Jamie Gertz or Daphne Z- Zuniga either like any of those. It, it could have been like your typical long haired brunette of the time.
1: Yeah. Not uh, Kelly Maroney. She was a bad girl.
0: Yeah. 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 She was not, she was not going to be in midnight madness as the love interest. That's for sure.
1: Um, I'm finding out right now because I can't stand to let this go. All right. All right. I'll, I'll let you fact
0: check that. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that in the pantheon of films that we've covered, uh, again, this movie sort of stands alone. Um, it is surreal, uh, which is a word that hasn't come up yet, and, and shame on us.
1: That's surprising.
0: Yeah, because that movie is, is certainly that. Um, so, yes, it's older. Uh, you know, a, one of the emails I got recently uh, about the show was that um the movie sounded fun, and this particular uh, listener I will not name names uh I will just embarrass him anonymously um, but he was saying, you know I just don't like to read the movies uh, that I'm watching and I, I don't I don't necessarily understand that, but i I understand that everyone's different and everyone has their preferences, so I'll leave it at that but this is a movie that you almost don't need to even read the subtitles, uh, assuming that you don't speak Japanese. Um, it, it really is a film that tells its story visually in a way that a lot of these films do not. So even if you're not partial to subtitled films, uh, you could still throw this on and the music alone is going to get you through, uh, the runtime. So, um. Did d- did we find out who our our lead actress was? It is
1: Deborah Klinger. Ooh,
0: I don't even remember that name.
1: I th- this may be the only thing she was ever in. Okay, well that's that's disappointing in a way. By the way, you're thinking the D's. Uh, Stephen First is in Midnight Madness, so mm, that's there all you go. There's a dynamic. Yeah, uh,
0: Stephen First is to Eddie Deason. And you you finish the rest of that SAT analogy. Um,
1: <laughs> okay, Stephen. First is to Eddie Deason as um, Shelley from Friday the Thirteenth Part Three is to Tab Hunter.
0: Okay, I'm willing to go with that. Tab Hunter. <laughs> Tab Hunter. Uh, also a very good documentary about tab hunter on netflix right now um it turns out tab hunter was gay what yeah surprised me too oh my god uh, it's, it's actually, actually telling
1: me rock hudson's gay
0: <laughs> it's actually a really great story as told by tab hunter about being closeted during that time and oh, not su- even imagine there's some surprisingly funny stuff in there um uh, but uh enough about tab hunter I can talk about Tap Hunter all night, Jeff. Um, you get me started, but uh, let's don't don't even mention Roddy McDowell. Uh, uh, <sighs> he had no reflection in my mirror.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love I
0: love Roddy McDowell at Friday more than I love most things. I I could probably, yeah, I I would probably kill my cat if it meant oh, I could man. have a, one more Roddy McDowell turn as Steve, uh as Peter Vincent. Um, I wouldn't be happy about it, but I'd do
1: it. See, you know what I like is I like Roddy McDowell in Columbo.
0: Oh well, sure. I mean, if we're gonna, you know, like all the the McDowell goodness, and there's plenty of it. <laughs> there's but, plenty of it. Yeah. Um. Any any time he turned up on Night Gallery. Yes. Uh. He was always great. Yeah. 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 And and actually, um, Le- uh, Legend of of Hell House is probably my favorite haunted house film ever made.
1: That's a good call. Yeah. You know, you know he had five names. Roddy McDowell did. His full name is Roderick Andrew Anthony Jude McDowell.
0: Uh, even his names are awesome. I know, right? Uh, Roddy McDowell. All right, let's, let's wrap it okay, up. Okay, are right? we doing? So, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> um, any final thoughts on, on Howso, uh, uh or Roddy McDowell? I will I'll
1: both <laughs> for that segment. <laughs> Uh, let's see final thoughts Um, I do have just a couple of of questions that remain after watching it again what about bananas I don't I I, I can't get the banana thing Um, also does eating unmarried women make it uh, better whatever
0: it is I wonder if that's just code for virginal
1: Oh, could be. Cause I was thinking like return to the living dead where the spinal cord zombie says that eating brains gets rid of the pain of being dead. So I don't know. I thought maybe there was some kind of correlation with that. I just wasn't sure what it was making better. Yeah. Send more
0: unmarried
1: girls. <laughs> Send more virgins. Yeah. But uh,
0: that that's, even though it's never outright said in the film that, you know, she eats virgins. Um, I, I gotta think that's what they're getting at when they say unmarried women, because you're not again, you know, right. traditional, uh, female roles in Japan are that you do not, you do not have sex until marriage. Right. Um, that is, that is not just religious. That's, that's cultural. Um, so, or, I mean, once upon a time, it's th- things are
1: changing, but, uh, um, well, you would think so with the vending machines I've seen from over there.
0: Yeah, it's like Japan is weird in that there is it, this uh, there is more sexual uh, more openness it seems to sexual variety or or sexual propriety in in, in male terms. Um, like men are, it's it sort of understood. Like, well, you know, men are going to go to these maid cafes and like, you know, the hostess bars and stuff like that. That there is still that traditional subservient Japanese female role being filled and even monetized. And at the same time, you have a culture that also is is still, you know, because it hasn't been that many years, struggling with Western ideology and how to marry. Western ideology, which the country is kind of obsessed with on a cultural level, but also, you know, literally thousands of years of tradition. And, you know, it's, it's a country that has been struggling with that for almost 200 years now. Um, since, you know, really opening up to the West, um, limited, although that, that openness has, has sometimes been, um, yeah, it's really fascinating. It's one of the things I like most about doing this show is, is and talking about these movies is that the culture it represents is a lot of these movies can be written off very easily as like, oh, those weirdo Japanese or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. A lot of this horror stems from the fact that the cultural identity of, of Japan has been in in a turbulent state for decades at this point. And and has suffered uh, a lot of economic crises as well, uh, which has, has you know heightened um, some of some of those cultural clashes. And it's right. it's fascinating. I mean, as a culture, there is nothing more fascinating to me than modern Japanese history. And by modern, I mean sort of you know Hong Kong and England Ford. You know, some of the the opium wars and stuff like that. Like, that's really the point where Japan kind of left feudalism behind and became something else. Um, Yeah, it's fascinating.
1: So (laughs) I think you can learn a lot about a culture by what they choose to pixelate. Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And also, you know, and more to the point of this show, what what horror films the culture is producing.
1: <laughs> Very much. So,
0: you know, like you can kind of read how so, uh, how so as a little bit of an exploration of the idea of female sexuality, uh, being something that is, is frightening. Um, there are alternate reads of, of this movie for sure, but yeah. you know, you can get there pretty easily. And then when, once you get into stuff like, um, You know, audition, and uh, you know, actually, a lot of the Miyuki stuff has has to do with the monstrous woman, right? Um, And you know, then obviously the technological stuff, which is like, I, 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 my my belief is that most most of the technology based horror films that you see, you know, like Ringu and pulse and, and, um, what ghost machine I think is the name of one of them. Um, but, uh, a lot of those films aren't necessarily necessarily about the technology, uh, specifically, but about sudden advancement and, and sudden like a, a, a cultural thing, erupting within society something that becomes ubiquitous very quickly um and and the
1: fears of that that makes a lot of sense
0: uh yeah you know sometimes i read stuff <laughs> and, and sometimes i remember it
1: uh, but no i mean that works for even stuff like machine girl
0: oh sure yeah like a lot of yeah. the body horns and, and splatter stuff the splatstick um uh, Japanese horror stuff always deals with transformation or, or desecration of the flesh of, of, one form or another. Um, also, you know, from a traditional point of view, uh, a lot of those movies tend to contain a Japanese girl who is, is transforming, uh, whether that's, you know, machine girl or mutant girl squad or Tokyo gore police um, Hell Driver. Should we do them all?
1: We can. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know,
0: uh, Vampire Girl versus Frankenstein Girls. That was going pick... to be the
1: next one. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. You pi- you pick the 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 splatstick Japanese horror film, and there is going <laughs> to be a girl that has a part of her body lopped off and or mutated.
1: Yes. Um. Yeah. And it's... weaponized.
0: And weaponized. Yes. Yes. That women, young girls whose bodies are changing are a threat. That's so crazy. Yeah, I know. I know, but it's also incredibly fascinating. It is. So, uh, yeah, one of, one of the things that, uh, like I said, I, I really enjoy about doing this show is that it, all of these cultures, um, to one degree or another have their unique qualities. Japan more so than the others has such a, 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 f- a direct history of conflict, both culturally and, and politically. And it's, it's fascinating. Like it, it is unlike any culture on the planet. And you can say that about plenty of other cultures, but this is the one that fascinates me. I love feudal Japan and stuff like we're, we'll talk about, uh, in just a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about kuroniko Um, and we'll be talking about some of the feudal stuff there. So, um. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anyway, enough, enough nonsense about uh, what's coming up. <laughs> um. So uh, that is how. So, uh, thank you so much, by the way, for for joining me for this film in particular because it is such an oddball film, and I, I'm I'm glad to to have someone on to discuss it that uh, enjoys talking thematically as as do I about these films.
1: I I really appreciate. I learned a lot tonight, Bo. <laughs> did you? I'm sorry. I really did. No, it's not your fault, and you can make it up to me later. But, yeah, this was a very inf- informative and fun show. I really appreciate it. That is what we strive for,
0: uh, edutainment.
1: <laughs> that's been the overriding goal.
0: So, uh, But, folks, that's Hausu. Uh, it is a, a twisted progenitor. Uh, to to films like uh Evil Dead and a movie that we didn't mention but but actually bears uh some some similar DNA uh and that is uh Happiness of the Katakuris um another Takashi Miike film by the way and uh and there's a bunch of other movies that try to capture the thing that Haosu seems to be able to do uh so seamlessly uh which is be weird and energetic and wonderful and if you haven't seen this movie, there truly is no way to capture the dizzying amount of strangeness contained therein. Uh, so give it a watch and drop us a line and let us know what you thought of the movie. Uh, you can find our discussion group on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Hero Hero Go Show. Uh, or by email at hero hero at com. Uh, You can find more of the show uh, at legionpodcast.com as well, or on iTunes. And there we would definitely appreciate a rate and review, uh, which helps the show be heard by more people who, let's face it, need a schoolgirl eating piano in their lives. So until next week, for Jeffrey X, Martin, and myself, this is as much Exist Trace as I can legally play for you. Good night
1: matter
0: me Happy, Jimmy, no duh, okay.